Over the past 20 years, the United Kingdom has endured a lot. We've seen epidemics, a global pandemic, the 2008 financial crisis, we've been in and out of wars, and also taking the decision to cleave ourselves away from the European Union. The UK Labour Party has also found itself voted out of government and struggling electorally. Amidst all of this, there is one constant, the Welsh Labour Party. The party has been governing Wales in one form or another for the best part of 20 years. Wales has returned a majority of Labour MPs to Westminster for well over 100 years. Come hell or high water, through thick and thin, the Welsh public trust and back the Welsh Labour Party. I think the UK Labour Party could learn a lot from Welsh Labour. And in this series, I'll be speaking to figures from across Welsh politics and the Welsh Labour movement to begin to understand why Welsh Labour wins. In today's episode, I'm joined by the former First Minister, Carwin Jones. We discuss his time at the very top of Welsh politics, the relationship between the two parties, as well as the politics of place, identity and culture. So thank you for joining me today on the Social Review podcast. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by the former First Minister and MS for Bridgend, Carwin Jones. Thank you for joining me, Carwin. Great pleasure, Michael. Thanks for having me on. I think many people who have been involved in Welsh Labour over the years have been kind of looking at the recent sets of elections. They've been looking at the success of Welsh Labour, obviously, and the kind of relative poor state the UK party's in. And I think a lot of us, especially, you know, I'm you know from Cornwall, I'm from England, so... I should actually say that I'm from Cornwall. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> get me, get me in trouble. That we, we look at the state of our party and we think, you know, we definitely could be learning a lot more lessons from Welsh Labour. And there seems to be this reticence to do so. And it's not just a thing specific to any one leader. It seems to be a kind of pattern of behaviour over an extended period of time. So I, I think to top off the interview, just just to just to start off. Why, despite all the changing conditions, despite all the changes in political events, despite, you know, we, we've entered wars, we've left wars, there's been financial crisis, there's been pandemics, epidemics. The UK party's faltered, but Welsh Labour's kept winning. Is there a common thread? Well, the first thing to remember is you don't win elections unless you're delivering for people. If people think you're no good, they're not going to vote for you. You know, no one has a, a divine right to uh, run government in Wales. And if people thought, you know, well, it's time for change, we're fed up of Labour, then they do so. But clearly, uh, people feel that we're delivering for them. Where we are at the moment in Welsh Labour, there's very little crossover in terms of what can be seen and used by the UK party. uh, Circumstances are very specific now in Wales. Back in uh, the middle of the last decade, uh, Roger Morgan and myself took the view that what we needed to do was to make sure we always appealed to the people who we described as the red-shirted patriots, the people who put on their Welsh football shirts and Welsh rugby shirts, who are very proudly Welsh, not in favour of independence, but, you know, devolutionists, they wouldn't call themselves that, because they were the largest chunk of the Welsh electorate, and that's where we needed to appeal. People were you know, left to centre. If we lost those people, as indeed we did in Scotland, then it's very, very difficult to get them back, and eventually they'll uh, travel along a path towards independence. So that was where we started. I carried that on, and Mark has done the same thing. You know, we've always, as a party, been very comfortable with our identity, been happy to sit there with a flag, been happy to portray ourselves as a very Welsh party. The number of times I've heard people say to me, well, I'm Welsh, so I vote Labour. It's quite remarkable. And you know, we've become the, the, the party of Welsh identity. 
not a nationalist party, but a party of Welsh identity. Now, it's very difficult to extrapolate that into the situation across the whole of the UK. It's a, it's, it's a quite deliberate uh, strategy that three of us employed over time uh, in order to um, to maximise the party's appeal. And it, you know, as we saw back in the election in May, uh, it's worked pretty well. On the point of sports teams, and I guess, well, yeah, the, the, in Scotland, some of them were they were maligned as 90-minute patriots or 80-minute patriots sometimes, weren't they? I've certainly noticed when I was in Wales that there is a comfort with, I think, the national sides that, that you know, Welsh political leaders have that I, I certainly feel maybe there's a bit more of a distance in terms of the English national sides. And there is a, a kind of reticence to be fully English or, you know, to em- embrace Englishness in any way. I think that there's multiple reasons for that, obviously, in terms of English identities difficult to grapple with. Is there is there an upside to, um, you know, the UK party embracing Englishness a bit more or is it just a symptom of a wider problem? I think it has to because... Englishness is a driving force, particularly in the northeast of England at the moment, and in some parts of the Midlands. People, identity politics is not something that I came into politics to, to preach or practice, and no one else would have done so in, in, in the Labour Party, but that's where we are. And so we have to find a way of dealing with that. There's no difficulty in embracing a form of Englishness that is not exclusive, that is dedicated to social justice. It's not all about this sort of odd empire loyalty nonsense that we that the Tories have tapped into at the moment, you know, drawing on a past that never existed. We have to craft that ourselves. Now, Blair did this very well back in the 90s. Uh, he he did just that. I mean, it wasn't Englishness for him, it was Britishness at the time. The, the, the situation was very different and the challenges were very, very different. But we can do it as a party. We don't have to be xenophobes, but we can be proud of identity uh, and also admire the identities of other people. It doesn't you know, it don't have to be some kind of xenophobe or nationalist in order to be proud of where you're from. And that, hopefully, is what we've managed to do with, with Welsh Labour. And one of the things I've noticed, looking at some of the stats that, that I've seen from the election, is that Welsh Labour had great appeal across the board, from people who only had a British identity uh, to people who only had a Welsh identity. You know, the, the, the appeal was quite consistent, whereas with the Tories, they appealed hugely to people who only had a British identity, and almost not at all to people who had a Welsh identity, and it was the exact opposite of plight government, as you can imagine. So being able to appeal across, to have a strong sense of identity, yes, but to be able to appeal across identities is crucial if you're going to win an election. Yeah, it's, it's often, yeah, it's, it's, you know, Welsh Labour's occupied that kind of middle space on like the constitution. And it's also, I mean, if you buy into the three, three Wales model, it's occupied that kind of middle space within that model as well, hasn't it? I think... Well, I'd argue that we're not in the middle space. Uh, I, we're far from the middle space. Uh, I'd argue that, you know, Mark and I, our position is identical on this anyway. We are home rulers. Mm-hmm. That's the phrase that Mark has used, not in favour of independence, of you know, create, creating a sovereign state, but you know, the kind, there are several different models you can use. I mean, we, I'm not going to speak for Mark, he can speak for himself, but I believe that there are things about the union that are worth preserving. So, for example, the fiscal and monetary union, defence, the common border, I think these things are best done at a UK level. But I do think that we should recognise each of the member uh, entities of the uh, UK, use entities because Northern Ireland, you know, is it a nation or not debate, uh, are themselves sovereign. Uh, and they decide to pool that sovereignty in areas where it makes sense for everybody to do so. That's quite radical thinking, because that means moving away from the model we have of parliamentary sovereignty, if indeed it really exists in law, discuss, and putting in place a radical constitution that will help to create a a partnership across the UK and will keep the best of what we have at the moment. Because the UK, as it is, because of the inflexibility of the Tories and their deliberate provocations, is in some danger and is in greater danger than I've ever seen in my lifetime. Radical, actually. 
rather than the, rather than perhaps middle ground, or perhaps that is the new middle ground. In which case yeah, I, I think um, it, what what I kind of meant by that, you know, is is the fact that it, you know it occupies the kind of like like the middle opinion in Wales in terms of the fact that if you were to talk to someone down the pub about you know where like constitutional future of the of the nation in broad terms, they'd say, oh, you know, I'd, I'd like more control over my life, but you know keep things broadly together and you think well yeah that's that's kind of the welsh labor position isn't it circling back on the idea of of cutting across different different demographics and also you know f- forging a, a broad base of support in the uk i think you know we, you can't move for talk of culture wars you can't move for the kind of discourse around it it seems to be never ending in terms of the fact that you know you've always got some sort of polemic about how the labor party needs to you know, you know, not bang on about minorities so much. It needs to, you know, kind of, you know, quiet that part of its platform down. But in Wales, we've obviously seen that, you know, we've got a party that has governed the country for the past 20 years, a, a party that has won a, a resounding victory in the last election, being, you know, stridently pro-LGBT, stridently proud of its credentials, creating a nation of, of sanctuary and proud of its credentials of its labour cities and, you know, Swansea and Cardiff, of its cities of sanctuary. And it seems that the culture war doesn't either touch it as much or they're able to kind of put forward arguments and actually win the culture wars why why is this do you think or have i just completely kind of misconstrued the situation i think we overblow the idea of culture wars i think culture wars really exist in, in the minds of a metropolitan elite to be honest say the word woke if we spoke to most people on the street they'd have no idea what the word meant it only exists in reality for people in a little bubble, uh, a little political bubble and that's not the majority of people i think the vast majority of people are, are moderate people you know, they're tolerant. You know, some of the people have suddenly become more intolerant. I think those who are already intolerant are louder than they were before and feel more emboldened than they were before. It doesn't mean that more people have become intolerant over time. And the megaphone that social media gives people means they look bigger than what they are. Uh, so I think that particularly has changed. I think most people are moderate, tolerant. I don't think that, that's changed. I think the difficulty we have at the moment in some parts of England is we're still f- feeling the after effects of Brexit. And the, the, the Tories have captured the Brexit narrative. They've not been caught out yet. I think they will. I think that is, that's a difficulty. It's been very difficult to create an alternative narrative with the pandemic because you know, Keir, Keir has been the person as a leader when there's been only one issue on the agenda. He's had no opportunity to craft an alternative narrative, no opportunity to bring forward new policies because everybody is focused on one thing, and that's the pandemic. And unless a government does things particularly badly, People will tend to side with, with with what with what they know because it's very difficult for an opposition to create that kind of uh, a kind of narrative. So I think we need to be patient. I think the time will come when we will see this start to uh, to burn out. Uh, I think the the Tories may talk about leveling up. Eventually, people will say, "Well, okay, you've talked about it. What does it mean? What does it mean for us now?" And that I think will burn out. I don't think those people are lost to us. I think those voters are lost to us. I think that they are lost to us for now. I don't think they're lost to us forever. But we need to start talking their language and, and making sure that they know we empathise with them. I mean, we're in this ridiculous scenario where a bunch of public school boys apparently are seen as more empathetic to working class communities than our own people. Now, we've got to get that's ludicrous. And we've got we've got to we've got to play them at their own game. Sometimes we're a bit too nice. You know, we've really got to got to take them on. And you know, I, I always did that. Well, so I'm speaking as ridiculously. I'm speaking as the first person to have led a government in the UK who went to a comprehensive school. I'm 50, only 55. Nobody, nobody has been the prime minister of the UK who spent their entire secondary education to comprehensive school. That's how ludicrous the situation is. And we must not change that. We just start attacking them on it. You know, we really have to start changing them. These people are not like ordinary people. They've lived very privileged lives. They don't have to worry about money. 
And I think we've been too reluctant about attacking them on that basis. And you know, we, we need to, you know, because our, our front bench is a damn sight more reflective of society than the Tory front bench. And we have to start making sure that starts to count. It's prescient you mentioned this because I think we're, you know, in the midst of A-levels re- results at the minute and we're seeing that the biggest increase or, you know, inflation of grades we're seeing is in from the privately educated that, you know, the, the amount of people getting significantly higher grades amongst yeah. privately educated people at the minute, you know, it's, you, you know, talk about kind of exacerbating class divides. You, it's happening right before us. So, so I think it's. Well, incri- if you have a system where teachers have to grade, mm. where you have pushy parents who have paid money, that's going to tell. Yeah, exactly. I, that's yes. Where, that's where the system can't possibly continue because that's exactly what will happen. Uh, and you're quite right to point out that this will just exacerbate what already exists. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, I, I've been a, a member of the Labour Party in Cornwall. I've been a member of the Labour Party in Wales. And and those are two very different experiences, obviously. You know, you've got another layer of government there. You've got you know <laughs> the success as well. Also, alongside that, you get, you know, in my experience, you know, I, my seat is a t- Tory Labour marginal. Cornwall's incredibly deprived. But there is a greater sense of, membership being kind of embedded in communities and knowing their communities a bit better than CLPs that I've been a part of in, in Cornwall and in England. Is, is that, you know, a part of, of Welsh Labour's success in that regard, in that the, the, the membership is a bit more grounded? I mean, you, you still get kind of daft meetings uh, at CLPs in, in Swansea, in, in my experience anyway. But, mm. you know, it, it certainly feels like the, the, the priorities are kind of more straightforward in Wales? I think we have some CLPs that are very reflective. Um, <laughs> others less so for, for reasons that are historic. I mean, for example, you know, if you look at my CLP in Bridget, it's very reflective for the local community. You know, we're very representative, really. And it's, it's you know, we're all, you know, it's, it's not some kind of strange echo chamber. And, you know, it's a good CLP. And there are other CLPs where, you know, historically, political parties, where they're at their weakest, their organisations tend to be less reflective of the community as a whole. So the further west you go, Quite often, you know, in Welsh-speaking seats, you don't get a Welsh-speaking, a big Welsh-speaking membership, and it's not as reflective. And I remember years ago, you know, the Duivon Marionid CLP, the, the, the constituency with the largest percentage of Welsh speakers in Wales, was not supportive of the Welsh language, if I can put it that way, many years ago. And, and that was a bizarre thing because the membership, almost all people who moved in. You know, that was a strange scenario to be in. So I think, you know, some CLPs are more reflective than others, and that's inevitable you know, if you look at Tory, you know, if you look at the, the Ronda Tories, they're probably completely unreflective of the Ronda. Uh, it's just the way it is. The bigger you are as a party on the ground, then the more reflective you are of the community around you. It's 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 the same for all political parties. Branching off on you know ideas about community and you know being embedded in it um, in your book, and I'm not being listeners. I, sh- I should just ask. I'm, I know I'm not I'm not being paid to say this in your in your book, which I, I recommend. It was a really good read. You not not just politics. The bits that aren't about politics talking about your life kind of growing up and being a boy you know a boy born in Morriston not Swansea you're very you know you're very keen to point that out the politics of place were were front and center to to your experiences and you know incredibly important to your political development is that something that is kind of matured as you know the kind of welsh political sphere has has got older or is this something that's always been incredibly important well first of all you're about morriston i i got no problem with it i tell i tell people i'm born in swansea my father however a Carmarthenshire boy um has still not been wrecked as i was meant to be born in in, in glamour uh, but i was too troublesome. I ended up in a special unit in, in Morriston, and my father this day has not reconciled himself as a commander lad. His son was born in Swansea, so he always says Morriston. 
I don't mind. I think it is important. I think in Wales we have a sense of place. You know, it, it does exist elsewhere, of course. It's not, it's not particularly Welsh. But there is a sense of place that is still very strong. Uh, you know, people are very deeply rooted in their communities. Even where people go away to university, for example, they often come back. I mean, I'm, I'm half a mile from where I started. Uh, it wasn't deliberate. It just happened to be that way. My, my wife's from Bel- I'm in Belfast now. My wife's from Belfast. You know, Irish people, they, they travel a lot, lot more. Most of the people I was in university with are not very far away from where they originally lived. <laughs> it's just, even though they're professionals who could, you know, potentially travel anywhere, it's just... We have this, you know, we, we're like homing pitches in that sense. So you do get that sense of community where, where you don't necessarily, you know, in certain many communi- communities, if somebody goes away, they stay away. You don't get that in the same way here. And it's that sense of place that drives that desire to be not very far away from where you originally started and bring your skills with you as well. That's uh, hugely important. We don't want people to lose professional skills because people feel they have to go somewhere else to uh, to work. And so that does generate a sense of belonging that is still with us. You know, we, I mean, my my family have been in the Amman Valley one side for at least 600 years and still there. So, you know, and people will talk about, you'll go back generations, you know, and talk about what happened three or four generations ago. It was yesterday. It doesn't mean they're living in the past. We should never live in the past, but we should use our past to shape our future. Thinking about the past, I mean, not as far back as as 600 years, admittedly. Obviously, over the course of the pandemic, we've had, you know, kind of various discussions about the Welsh NHS, Scottish NHS, the English NHS. You know, it's brought into stark contrast devolution for many people. I think a lot of people went into the latest set of Welsh Parliament elections thinking we're going to have a pretty you know, significant increase in turnout. Unfortunately, it didn't materialise, but the election obviously took um, you know, a kind of higher level of prominence than it did previously. During your time as First Minister, I, you know, even I remember this and I was you know, kind of you know, in, my, in my late teens at that point, you would kind of watch PMQs and Ed Miliband would bring up something about the NHS and David Cameron would, without fail, kind of like a, a wind-up doll, hammer out some pre-prepared line about the Welsh NHS. And you, you, could, you could script it out, basically. And you know, I think a lot of people obviously felt and a lot of people observed that Ed Miliband never really had kind of the answers for that. Never, I never really wanted to to make a full throated defense of the Welsh NHS and the Welsh way of doing things. You always kind of caught in that in that halfway house of saying you're doing things wrong. But when we're running parts of the country, we obviously in the in the broadest sense, we're not actually going to defend ourselves. And that was always a kind of strange situation to watch. Now, I think in terms of the pandemic, you're watching Wales have the fastest vaccine rollout of nearly anywhere in the world. And it's incredibly clear cut in terms of jabs in arms are going faster. When vaccines were first starting to be rolled out, you could you couldn't move for telegraph features about how the, the Welsh NHS was, you know, failing the rollout and oh it was going on too slow. Wales is now 10% ahead, of course, listeners, if you're not aware, or you know, near enough 10% ahead of the rest of the country at any given time, and you hear basically nothing about it. Why is it that you know, UK Labour leaders of, of basically many different stripes are, are so reticent to stand up and talk up the Welsh NHS, talk up the achievements of Welsh Labour. Because if I was leader of the opposition at the minute, I would be blue in the face talking about how fast jabs are going in arms in Wales right now. Well, firstly, at the time of Ed Miliband's leadership, we kept on briefing them and they kept on ignoring those briefings and they wouldn't stand up for us. And there was a sense of great frustration. And our part, it was almost as if they saw us as a sideshow and we could be safely ignored. And they couldn't be, you know, it couldn't be safely ignored. But it's not as if they didn't have the ammunition to fight back. They did. They just didn't use it for reasons best known to themselves. 
Keir is doing that, in fairness. I've heard him um, mention what's happening in Wales. The Tory papers have their own agenda, of course. And of course, when things start to go well, Wales has the, the highest vaccination rate in Europe and the second highest in the world. You won't hear that in the Telegraph because that doesn't fit with their narrative. But there's, there's a little, you know, there's a sense in, in some of the Fleet Street papers that there's a, there's a bit of, you know, sort of latent racism there, in my view, uh, which says that, you know, the Welsh are a bit stupid and they're never going to do anything properly and they're a bit backwards, so we're going to hammer them. That's part of it. Some of it's politics, you know, because it's a Labour government, but that's there. That is undoubtedly there, in my mind, uh, across uh, many of the London papers. You know, I, I, that's my belief and what, what I see. And when things start to go well, of course, it's conveniently ignored. But the point is the people of Wales have noticed it. They noticed it in the election. The, the narrative wasn't drowned out by the English papers, which often it is because you know, most people read the English papers. They don't produce Welsh editions. Uh, and I think you know, the Telegraph and others have their tails between their legs now in terms of what they published originally. The Telegraph is more Boston's mouthpiece, effectively. It's there to, you know, it is closest, it is the closest paper to the to the UK government. Uh, and if the UK government is doing less well than the Welsh government, why should we be surprised that there's no coverage of it? that brings us to the end of another episode of the social review podcast if you enjoyed this week's episode please feel free to share it on the social media platform of your choice it helps the show out massively and if you have any questions you'd like to ask us you can at us on twitter at sockreviewpod email us sockreviewpod at gmail.com or leave a response to the google form that you can find on our twitter our music is the dance by kyle cox licensed under creative commons thank you for listening and have a fantastic rest of the day